Michael Tuck, and I'm the associate pastor here at Bacon's Castle Baptist Church. We are a local church in Surrey, Virginia, dedicated to making disciples of Jesus Christ. This is the weekly podcast that we put out for our local church family and the church as a whole. We hope you enjoy this week's podcast. Going to Joshua chapter 8, but we're not going to start there. We're going to back up and go to Deuteronomy chapter 27, because that actually sets the stage for Joshua chapter 8. So going back to Joshua 27, we're going to start reading in verse 1. And this is when Moses is still alive. This is before they've crossed over the Jordan, and Moses is giving his final instructions to the children of Israel. And this is the thing he says. Moses and the elders of Israel, verse 1, commanded the people, Keep every command I'm giving you today. At the time you cross the Jordan into the land the Lord your God has given you, you must set up large stones and cover them with plaster. I'm a brick mason, so I appreciate that. Write all the words of this law on the stones after you cross to enter the land the Lord your God is giving you, a land flowing with milk and honey, as Jehovah the God of your fathers has promised you. When you have crossed the Jordan, you are to set up these stones on Mount Ebal, as I am commanding you today, and you are to cover them with plaster. Build an altar of stones there to the Lord your God. You must not use any iron tool on them. Use uncut stones to build the altar of God and offer burnt offerings to the Lord your God. There you are to sacrifice fellowship offerings. Eat and rejoice in the presence of the Lord your God. Write clearly all of the words of this law on the plastered stones. Moses and the Levitical priests spoke to all Israel. Be silent, Israel, and listen. This day you have become the people of the Lord your God. Obey the Lord your God and follow his commands and statutes I'm giving you today. So this is the background to Joshua chapter 8. Joshua is still subordinate to Moses. Moses is still clearly the leader. And as before they get to the promised land, Moses gives Joshua this direct command. When you get there, there's a specific spot. Almost makes you wonder whether Moses in his 40 years in the wandering in the wilderness had perhaps been in the promised land and knew where this place was. Maybe it was from the spies 40 years before when they came through. I don't know. But he says specifically there's two mountains, Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim. And I want you to go there, take 12 stones, build an altar, cover it with plaster, and write all of this law onto it. And so Joshua, in chapter 8, a while later, follows through. So now we're switching to Joshua chapter 8, reading the last part, uh, starting in verse 16. Sorry. Verse 30. At that time, Joshua built an altar on Mount Ebal to the Lord, the God of Israel, just as Moses, the Lord's servant, had commanded the Israelites. He built it according to what is written in the book of the law of Moses, an altar of uncut stones, on which no iron tool has been used. Then they offered burnt offerings to the Lord and sacrificed fellowship offerings on it. There on the stones, Joshua copied the law of Moses, which he had written in the presence of the Israelites. All Israel, foreigner and citizen alike, with their elders, officers, and judges, stood on either side of the ark of the Lord's covenant, facing the Levitical priests who carried it. As Moses the Lord's servant had commanded earlier, half of them were in front of Mount Gerizim and half in front of Mount Ebal to bless the people of Israel. Afterward, Joshua read aloud all the words of the law, the blessings as well as the curses, according to all that is written in the book of the law. There was not a word of all that Moses had commanded that Joshua did not read before the entire assembly of Israel, including the women, the little children, and the foreigners who were with them. And so this morning, if you're sitting here and you're feeling too warm, 
and just be thankful you weren't standing on the side of a mountain in the desert for hours and hours and hours as they read through the entire book of the law. We've become kind of wimps over time. I've titled this, the sermon this morning, Writing on Stones, uh, subtitled, Using the Word, Passing the Word of God to Future Generations. And it's going to be a little bit of, for, for, for me, more practical. It's going to be more of a practical application, something that we can actually utilize right now today and tomorrow and the next day when we're not quite sure what to do in the face of all of the things that are facing us. We can do what's in the Word today. First point. Because something is ancient does not mean that it's obsolete. Our modern philosophy says this, whatever is newer is by definition better. Now, I would caveat that in saying generally whatever is newer is nicer. If you get a newer vehicle, it has more features, it's shinier, maybe gets better fuel mileage. But that doesn't necessarily mean it's better. It depends on how you look at it. If you're a mechanic, you look at a new vehicle and you say, Ugh, I don't want one of those. I'm going to go back to something that's got a carburetor on it and gets terrible fuel mileage, but I can fix it. Depends on the perspective. But there are some things that never change. And one of the things that never changes is human nature. Since the garden, we've been, at our core, sinful. We have been bent towards evil. We have a selfish desire that will come out. And so when God gives the commands to the children of Israel through Moses, what he gives them is actually his version of what we are. I want you to do this, and I want you to do this, and I want you to do this. Don't do this. By the way, I don't need to explain it to you. Just follow what I'm telling you to do. Why would he do that? Because he understands human nature having built us, having watched us break. And Joshua comes along and recognizes that. Now, there's some examples uh, in our modern life of ways that we look at human nature correctly or incorrectly. So, for instance, when, when our founders wrote the Constitution, they wrote it from the perspective that humans, if given the opportunity will try to amass power for themselves, will try to lord it over others, will try to do things that will hurt other people. That's built into the Constitution. And so the Constitution was written to make sure that the government knew it could only go this far and no further without infringing on the rights of the people that they were governing. Never forget that you serve the people you're governing. That's why it's worked for so many years, because it correctly, it correctly understood human nature. Capitalism versus socialism. Capitalism works. Why? Because it assumes the fact that I'm selfish. I'm going to work harder getting stuff for myself than I'm going to work for you getting stuff for you. And socialism makes the assumption that we have this innate goodness that makes me want to just give you everything I have. And it's just not true. And so certain philosophies, as we live our lives out, certain philosophies are true to human nature, and those work. Now, they don't always work perfectly. A constitution doesn't always work perfectly. It had to be amended periodically. But the reality is that the human nature has not changed. And Joshua comes along, and as the new leader, Moses assigns Joshua the new leadership position, and Joshua recognizes in Moses, in the writings that God has given to Moses, the law that he's given to him, he recognizes human nature correctly assumed. 
And so he follows through with it. It's interesting, he didn't use his authority to create a new and improved law of Moses. He could have. He was the supreme leader of Israel. He could have, but he didn't. He didn't discard Moses' instructions as old-fashioned. I want you to think about this. Supposing that uh, you inherit a large corporation from your father who inherited it from your grandfather. And written into that corporation's rules are certain things requiring you to treat the customers and to treat the employees a certain way. A proper and good way. And you come along and you're like, yeah, but that's not how you make money. This is how we're going to make money. And you change the rules. Now, do you have the right to? Well, you're running the corporation now. Are you wise to? Probably not. Because oftentimes what is there before us, what is ancient already, has not been disproved with time. Just because it's ancient doesn't mean it's obsolete. There's actually a contrast to that with Jeroboam because it's actually a different time in Israel's history. When Solomon had, had died, he was the king. He was the last king of the, of the United Kingdom of Israel. And when Solomon died, his son Rehoboam comes to the stage. And Rehoboam says, I'm going to smash you guys. I'm going to make you work t- ten times harder than my dad did. And so Jeroboam rises up in rebellion to that, and he takes ten of the tribes of Israel with him and leaves And they separate off and they become the northern kingdom of Israel. And Jeroboam, in that moment, could have done what Joshua did, could have said, you know what? We're still still the children of Abraham. We're still under the covenant. And so we're going to continue to follow the word. But what did he do? He said, ah, that stuff's old-fashioned. I mean, that's a couple hundred years old now. We need to get rid of that. I'm going to build you some new gods. We're going to make some golden calves. We're going to set them up, one in the north end of the country, one in the southern end. These are going to be our gods, Israel. And it says Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, caused Israel to sin. He dragged them right down the tubes. And they never recovered from that cycle because their leader refused to follow the tried and true, the thing that God had given for us to know how we are to interact with each other. All right, second point. First point is just because it's old, just because it's ancient doesn't mean it's obsolete. Second point is obedience to the word of God was more important than conquest. Now Joshua comes on the scene and Moses is 120 years old. He's not allowed into the promised land because he's been um, basically restricted by God for disobeying God and misrepresenting God to the children of Israel. Joshua comes on the scene and Joshua's if you want to call it a, a fresh look, a fresh leader, he's much younger than, than uh, Moses. And he's going to be the man to lead them in. And his job, his job is the conquest of Israel. To get Israel into the promised land, to wipe out the nations that are not serving the Lord. And instate the 12 tribes where they belong. And he manages to accomplish it. But if you go back to Joshua chapter 1... When, when uh, the Lord meets Joshua, he does something interesting. The Lord says to Joshua, No one will be able to stand against you as long as you live. I will be with you just as I was with Moses. I will not leave you or forsake you. 
Be strong and courageous, for you will distribute the land I swore to their fathers to give them as an inheritance. Above all, be strong and very courageous to carefully observe the whole instruction my servant Moses commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right or to the left, so that you will have success wherever you go. This book of instruction must not depart from your mouth. You are to recite it day and night, so that you may carefully observe everything written in it. For then you will prosper and succeed in whatever you do. Have I not commanded you, be strong and courageous. Don't be afraid or discouraged, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Second point, obedience to the word of God is more important than conquest. Uh, what does that mean for us? Well, I'll tell you what the modern philosophy is. The modern philosophy is focus on the obstacle that's in your path that's blocking you from success. And frankly, in a world that is perilous, in a world that tries men's souls, in a time that tries men's souls, it's very easy to focus on the things that are in front of us that are unnerving us, that we don't know what to do with. That's where our focus, I, I struggle with it all the time. I listen to very little news because I don't want to focus on it, and it's so depressing. That's the modern philosophy. Focus on it until you can figure out how to get around it. And God comes along, and he doesn't say to Joshua, he doesn't say, hey, by the way, there's this, there's this general out of this up-and-coming nation up north of Syria, and I'm going to send him down here. He's really good at conquering lands. I'm gonna come down, he's going to come down here, and he's going to teach you guys how to fight. And Joshua, I'm going I'm to send a book over from China. There's a guy over there that wrote a book called The Art of War, and it's great. It teaches you all about learning how to conquer people. And I want you to focus on that book. I want you to, to study the art of war. Because your job is to, is to fight down the people that are in this land, to get rid of them, and to conquer this land for my people. Now, he says, Joshua, remember that book that Moses wrote? That's the most important thing in your life. I want you to think about it every day, all day, all the time. You meditate on it, you do it, you ask questions about it, you contemplate it, and you never let it get out of your mind. And if you do that, then the conquest part I'll take care of for you. That doesn't even make sense. If I want to learn Spanish, why would I read the King James Bible in English? I would go find myself a Spanish teacher, and I would, I would figure out how to learn Spanish because it's the obstacle standing in my way. Now, do you think Joshua learned some things along the way? Do you think he learned uh, after AI, hey, Better check with everybody before we go into the next battle. Make sure there's not sin in the camp. He's, he's going to learn things about leading. and He's going to learn things about dealing. He, matter of fact, he comes up with some amazing strategies. Um, when AI is conquered, the description, the topographical description of the, of the battle against AI is so perfect. So perfect. They didn't know for years where AI was. And, and a group of biblical archaeologists said, you know, this is a pretty good... There's a pretty good description here. And they took a topographical map of Israel and they laid out what they thought from the, from the description in Joshua, how the, top, how the topography around AI would look based on the battle plan. And they took, that, they took that map that they made and they overlaid it onto the nation of Israel and they found AI by the topographical illustration in the book of Joshua. And it was smack where it was said to do. Is that amazing or what? There's, there's things that he's learned as he goes along. He learns how to fight, but he learns how to fight 
under the direction of the Lord. And so when he comes to illust- when he comes to situations like I'm running out of sunlight, he doesn't say, "Oh, I wish I had more people." He says, "God, help me. Stop the sun. I need more time." And the Lord does. So they're doing a pretty good job. Joshua's meditating on the scriptures. He's following the Lord. They've conquered Jericho. He does exactly what God says. He conquered Ai after listening to what God says. Then they break off. They break off the conquest, and they do what Moses said. They finally they fought their way north, and they get to Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim. And Joshua says, "Okay, guys, it's time to." to take a little break. We're not going to fight right now. We're going to go and do what, Je- what Moses said for us to do. And they build an altar. Now, I don't know what size the altar was. I can't imagine writing on stone the entire copy of the law of God. I mean, it seems pretty incredible, but they did. Then they have this giant festival. I can't imagine how long it took, but they managed to get six tribes on one, on one mountain and six tribes on the other mountain. And they have this big church service for hours and hours and hours in the sunshine. And it says the women were there, the little children were there, the fo- everybody was there. This is a covenant between us and God. And I think sometimes we get, we forget sometimes how good we have it in our world of air conditioning and, and buildings and stuff. But something happened when I was, when I was looking at this. Um, I have to admit that when I read the story, I thought, I wonder why Moses chose Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim. Because it doesn't really play into, if you want to call it the history of Israel, it doesn't, it's not a part of, of the worship at Jerusalem. Jerusalem at, under David quickly becomes the center, and from that point on becomes the center of Israel, becomes the center of uh, Jehovah's worship. It becomes everything. I mean, even still today, we talk about Jerusalem as the center of the Israeli world. And we talk about the new Jerusalem. It becomes the word. But why Ebal and Gerizim as these mountains? So I went to my Bible maps, and I pulled out my Bible map that has Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim on it. And what I discovered was something very interesting. Which leads me to point three. Writing the word of God on the altar ensured that anyone in Israel could come and read it whenever and in any future generation. Ebal and Gerizim are dead center in the country. And writing on stone ensured that it would last for, I'm assuming, hundreds of years. You know what that meant? It meant that out in the middle of nowhere, there's a copy, a hard copy of the law of God and you living in the nation of Israel can go there anytime you want. When a conversation comes up, you can't Google it, right? You can't go to your personal Bible because you don't have one. What did Grandpa say that, that we're supposed to do in this situation? And Oh, yeah, let's... You take a trek over to the altar and you go around the altar until you find. It was there for anyone who wanted, whenever they wanted, for years and years and years. Completely independent of potential corruption at Jerusalem. Out in the middle of nowhere, interestingly enough, next to Jacob's well, in between two mountains. There's another thing that I think Moses didn't know, 
what was going to happen. And God told Moses, he said, I want, I'm transferring the leadership from you. You've done a great job. I'm transferring leadership from you to Joshua. But I'm going to tell you now that these people that you've led out of Egypt through the wilderness for 40 years that are going in to conquer the land of Canaan, there's coming a point when they will get so wicked, I will drive them out of this country. The northern tribes of Israel were eventually sent out of the country, dispersed into the nations. And it was inside, within five miles of Samaria, which was the very corrupt, Baal-worshipping capital of the northern kingdom. This altar was within five miles of there. I thought that was interesting because it was almost as if God was giving within the part of the country that would become the most corrupt and the most uh, destructive to the word of God. He was giving them a copy that anyone could come back to, even when the king was corrupt. Judah in the southern kingdom, they would have good kings and bad kings and good kings and bad kings. The northern kingdom once established, basically they just had one horrible, evil king after the next from one end to the other. And yet, silently out here in the middle of nowhere, is the law of God. And I don't know, there's some conjecture here. Obviously there's some conjecture because no one knows this, but I wonder when Elijah and Elisha come on the scene, do you know what kingdom that's in? It's in the Northern kingdom. There's some of the greatest prophets in the Old Testament in terms of God's using them for miraculous power, but there's something else that occurs. When Elijah and Elisha begin to interact with the king, Ahab's chasing Elijah, and he comes back, and Obadiah says what? I have saved. Who did he save from the wrath of Ahab? Do you all remember? A hundred men who were the prophets of Jehovah. And then Elisha comes on the scene, and part of, part of the miracles that he does has to do with the sons of the prophets. They're building, if you want to call it, they're building these little monasteries, or they're building these little seminaries to teach people about the word of God. And it's in the northern kingdom. It's not in the southern kingdom. So far as I can tell, you never read about that happening in the southern kingdom. And I wonder, I can't prove it, but I wonder, I wonder if those men would sneak out into the wilderness at night and read the word of God. Do you suppose that? Elisha has access, direct access. Elijah has direct access to the word of God if it's still standing there. And I wonder if Moses, Moses' instruction to Joshua, where to put it, was strategic in that, so that even in the northern kingdom, the remnant, because Elijah, when he's depressed and he said, there's no one else that's willing to follow you, and God said, hold it. I got 7,000 more people who refuse to worship Baal, and I wonder if those would keep going back to hear the word of God at the altar. Can't prove it, but I wonder. <clears throat> Third thing about this building this altar in the center of this new country was that I think it was an indication to everyone that this is the point. This is the point around the whole thing is supposed to revolve. It's not about, it's not about being greater than everyone else. It's not about whooping up on people and taking their land from them. It's about God establishing his covenant with a group of people in a specific spot to keep his word alive through the years so that his word, which endures forever in heaven, can endure on earth until he comes back. I think that's what it was for. Fast forward 1,500 years. Jesus is on earth now. And he and his disciples are walking along, and they stop at a well one day, a well in a place called Sychar. 
And they're in the land of Samaria. That's the northern kingdom. Despised place. And Jesus is sitting there at the well, and a woman comes up to him and begins to interact with him. And as Jesus probes into her life, she gets nervous, and she says, Hey, hey, our forefathers used to worship on this mountain. And I, I wondered about that growing up because I had never made this connection. Our forefathers worshipped on this mountain. What do you mean? Who, who worshipped on it? You know what mountain she's talking about? She's talking about Mount Ebal right there. That's where, the, that's where this covenant was made. That's where this altar was made. I don't know if it was still standing, but the memory that Jehovah was worshipped there and his word was there was still, was still associated with that mountain 1,500 years later. It made a tremendous impact. And Jesus was able to use that to do what? To put, the, to put the truth back into Samaria. She goes back to the city, and that, that city turns to him 1,500 years later because their forefathers worshiped on this mountain. Joshua carrying through Moses' command. Moses dead. It doesn't matter. Nobody's going to see. Joshua says to himself, ah, it's a waste of time. We got cities to beat up. No. First and foremost, the word of God needs to be established here. It's a neat history lesson. How in the world does it apply to us? So I'll start the applications with a story I heard years ago. A fellow goes to work one day and he tells his coworker, he says, man, do you, you have any idea who somebody named, named Gutenberg is? And his coworker gets all excited and he says, oh yeah, he invented the printing press. And, 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 and he was amazing, like it was a technological advance. And, and the first thing he did, the first book ever printed on a printing press was the Bible and they called it the Gutenberg Bible. And his coworker who just comes in with this quizzical look said, he said, I thought so. He said, I, I was going through my granddaddy's stuff. I, I, I got some stuff from the auction. I was going through it, and I found this big, fat, old Bible, and it was stunk and was falling apart, and it said Gutenberg on the front. And his historical, loving coworker said, oh, my goodness, you have a treasure. That thing is worth millions. And he said, oh, no. <laughs> he said, I threw it away. And his coworker said, why? He said, it wasn't any good. He said, you know, if it had been pristine condition, yeah, but he said some guy named Martin Luther scribbled notes all over it. <laughs> and our hearts sink into the thought of that precious. Can you imagine finding something, the Bible that Luther scribbled his notes on, the Bible that, that was in prison with, with some great saint that you know and love, and, and his notes, his thoughts on it, written in it? And you think of throwing that away, it makes you sick. So that leads to my applications. And I have three. My first one is this. I think it's time for us to return to the written word. Now, I know that we have, our phones have the Bibles on them, and I understand that, I get that. But I want to give you an illustration from my own life. When I was four or five, I think. One of my first memories of my dad, and I, I was talking to Melissa about it this morning, it's, po it's probably because dad wasn't home in the morning, so Sunday mornings 
when I got up, Dad was there. And my memory of Dad, as early back as I can go, Sunday morning, he would have cereal and milk on the table for us when we got up. And he was dressed, and he was reading from his Ryrie Study Bible 40 years ago. They say a picture is worth a thousand words, and that picture in my mind is worth many, many words. So I'm my first, and, and these are, this is eminently practical. These are some of these things I've, I've been thinking about for years, but, I've, but it was taking this sermon for me to actually kind of compile them into thoughts that made sense to me. Hopefully they'll make sense to you. The Bible on the phone is fine because it still is the scripture, but I will tell you that your son or your daughter will not have the memory of dad sitting at the table reading from this book. My dad is still reading from that same Bible. Last year, I think it was last year for Christmas, my mom had it rebound for him because it was wore out. Now, there's eight of us in my family. I don't know who's going to get dad's Bible. I hope it's me. But it is loaded because he has read and read and pondered from that same book for well over 40 years. You think that'll be an inspiration to me as I get older? When my grandfather died, my grandpa Beachy, it was, it was incredibly unnerving to me for the simple fact that nobody likes to really be responsible when you don't know what's going on. And in my mind, Grandpa Beachy was, I may not agree with him, but he was at least old and wise. And then there was Dad, who was not quite as old and not quite as wise, but working on it. And then there was me. So as long as there was a crisis, as long as we were in perilous times and times that try men's souls, I didn't have to worry about my own wisdom. I didn't have to think, oh my goodness, people are depending on me to come up with the right answer. I can always go to Grandpa. I can go to Dad. And then Grandpa died. And the point of the spear moved one click closer to me being at the front of it to me being the grandpa that young people will look at and maybe disagree with, but at least know that there's somebody in front of them. And it was terrifying to me. But I have a book here. Stories and Happenings of Eli N. Beachy. This is my great, great grandfather's musings. It's awesome. Just regular practical thoughts. And then he delves into theology. And he talks about my great-grandpa at 16 years old and things that he did on the farm. But I wouldn't have that if he hadn't written it down somewhere on paper that somebody could find and put into a book for me. And so my grandfather died, my great-grandfather died, my great-great-grandfather died, and if the world continues on in sequence, my father will die someday. And I will be responsible for the generations behind me to carry the torch forward. I will be responsible to not drop it, to not mess it up at the end of the game. And I am very grateful that my grandpa and my great-grandpa didn't have computers to put their stuff on. 
what they thought they wrote onto paper, and paper can be found and reread a hundred years later. You need no electricity, you need nothing. And so I'm saying to you, return to the written word. Whether you use the smartphone for your Bible, get yourself a good study Bible and plunk that thing down on the table on Sunday morning and let your kids see you reading it and studying it and underlining it. They need to know that you care. And, that, and you can say, well, I read it on my phone. Maybe you do, but I don't know. When I look at it, I don't know if you're reading Tom Sawyer or the Wall Street Journal or the Bible. I don't know what you're looking at. But when you got this in front of you, I know what you're looking at. This is not to shame you if you use one. This is an encouragement to get back to what I think is reality. And the reason I think it's reality is because it's been around for a long time and it will continue to be on. When you find a pile of love letters from your grandpa and your grandma in a drawer. It's very, very readable. It's very enjoyable. It goes back and tells you what they were thinking. And Billy Love, when Dietrich was born, my oldest son was born, he gave me a book and it was called A Father's Legacy. And it was a whole series of questions. It was one of the coolest books I've ever seen. It's a whole series of questions with an empty page behind it. And the questions were things like, when was the first time you went to a ball game? What was your experience like? Regular old, ordinary life stuff. You know, I could have that thing filled out by now, and I haven't put the first entry in that book. And that thing sits in my library and haunts me because I'm not doing it. But there comes a point, there comes a point when I won't write anymore because I won't be here anymore. And my children may wonder, I wonder what dad thought about that. They get in a situation, they get in perilous times that try men's souls, and they'll wonder, what did dad, what did dad think about that? And they won't know because I didn't write it down. Leading to point two, to the second application is, First one is return to the written word, and that reason I say that is because the second application is write in the written word. When my father dies, he will have, he will have years of underlined thoughts scribbled into margins. He will have years of wisdom accumulated. I will be able to look through that and see my dad's growth through time, theological concepts as he, as he morphed them out and filled them out. All in one book. I read, a, I read an article this week by a lady who uh, is the daughter-in-law of Cheryl Lowe who founded, uh, I think it was Memoria Press is the name, it's a homeschool curriculum. And Ms. Lowe said when her mother-in-law died, her dad-in-law gave her her mom's entire collection of books. And she said, they're full of scribbles. They're full of underlined passages. And she had a picture of Charlotte's Web the kid's book, thoughts in there, underlined. And she said, my, grandchildren, my children can know their grandmother by reading these books and seeing her thoughts written into it. How much more can your children and your grandchildren know you when you put your thoughts and your musings, your doubts, your faith-building things into the Word as you, as you travel along, as you're writing in here? And I have, when I was, when I was in my teenage years and in my early 20s, I filled up, I wrote and wrote, and I would write in my Bible, and, I'd, and I would notate it, and I would recommend that you would do that. If you decide to take this route, note the date. It's been very interesting for me to go back and read my own musings from 20 years ago 
and to see where the Lord has led me. I came in one day, I was a couple weeks ago, and my wife is reading something and all of the kids are sitting in dead silence in the living room. You know what she's reading? She's reading her journal growing up from about the time she was 14 until we got married. And some of them are only maybe two or three entries a year, but it is fascinating. You know why it's fascinating? Because my kids know their mom. And she's all grown up, and she knows everything, even if they disagree with her. And she was never young and worried and wondering who she's going to marry someday and what God has for her in life. And you read the words that were written when you're 16 years old and you're confused and you don't know what's going on. And then you read them at 18 and there's a little more stability there. And you read them at 21 and God has got a hold of her. And you read at 24, I think I may have met the man. It wasn't me. It is quite a journey. And those kids sat there in silence listening to their mom go from small and young and vulnerable to older and wiser and still vulnerable. Those are the things that you can use when you write. Moses said to Joshua, once you write it on stone, for us, we can write it on paper. Write it down because your kids need it. Their faith needs it. My dad's Bible will be necessary in my life at some point because I need to hear what he had to say. When it's my time to be the end of the spear, when it's my time for the the kids and the grandkids to come and ask me for wisdom. I got people that I can still turn to, those who've gone on, those who've run the race, fought a good fight, and kept the faith. And I can go and ask them the question and get an answer from them. And finally, this is one I have never heard anyone say before. I will leave it with you. If anybody chooses to do this, let me know, because I actually don't expect anyone to do this. Write the written word. Did you know? Did you know that in Deuteronomy there is instructions to the kings? Yeah, Moses knew there was going to be kings because God told him. Deuteronomy chapter 17, listen to this. When you enter the land the Lord your God is giving you, take possession of it, live in it, and say, I will set a king over me like the nations around me. You are to point over you the king the Lord your God chooses. Appoint a king from your brothers. You are not to set a foreigner over you or one who is not of your people. However, he must not acquire many horses for himself or send the people back to Egypt to acquire many horses. For the Lord has told you, you are never to go back that way. He must not acquire many wives for himself so that his heart won't go astray. Now listen. When he is seated on his royal throne, he is to write a copy he is to write a copy of this instruction for himself on a scroll in the presence of the Levitical priest. It is to remain with him, and he is to read from it all the days of his life. Why? So that he may learn to fear the Lord his God, to observe all the words of the instruction, and to do these statutes. Then his heart will not be exalted above his countrymen. He will not turn from the command to the right or the left, and he and his sons will continue ruling for many years in Israel. Did y'all know that was in there? That the kings, as they came to power, their first job in the presence of the Levites who knew what the law was, write their own copy. So the third application is write the written word. When I was young, I began to write. Uh, I actually found a, a tablet not too long ago 
the tablet I'm referring to has paper in it, not the, the new ones. And it had, it had uh, the first two chapters of 1 Peter written into it. I had written it, I'd wrote it in there. It was my work, it was my work tablet at the time, and I was going to use it to memorize Scripture. But I thought, wouldn't that be neat? Wouldn't that be neat? We read the Scripture, and sometimes, frankly, it's hard to focus. And we read stuff, and we don't even know we read it. But when you write and read at the same time, it sticks in your head better. So what if you went home and you said, okay, Lord, which book? And you just begin to write the words of God. And you can, I can, you can imagine how it will stick in your head. You can imagine what it would feel like in 100 years for your great-grandchild to find a tablet full of the word of God with notes even that you put on the side as things that you thought of as you're writing it. What would that be like? Moses said to Joshua, I want you to write on stones. And writing on stones will pass the word of God down for generations. I thought about it this week. Thank you, David, for that verse this morning. The word of God will endure forever in the heavens. And men cannot destroy the word of God on earth. They have been trying for thousands of years, and they have not yet destroyed it. But you know what's interesting? It's in part the men who, dis- who try to destroy it are equally offset by the men who are determined to keep it. And somehow or another, God in his sovereignty allowed us the privilege of being a part of preserving his word down through the years. And I want to encourage all of you, in a time that is trying our souls, in perilous times, in uncertain times, we don't even know sometimes day by day what to expect from life. This book of the law shall not depart out of your mouth, but you shall meditate in it day and night. And then, he says, I will make you successful. Success doesn't always look like what we think it looks like. But it is what God wants. Return to the Word. If you are using a smartphone in your Bible, that's fine. But find yourself a good a good study Bible that you can, like I said, that you can plunk on the counter, that you can sit on the edge of the couch. And so your kids know, even if you've read before they get up, they, go, they can go there and look and see what dad's been reading this morning. Huh, he's been reading out of Proverbs. I wonder if I should read there. And then write in it. Scratch it all up with the thoughts that God has given you as you're, as you're reading. And then finally, if you have the courage, take on a book of the Bible and begin to write it on paper and see if God doesn't do something with that to change your heart. It's been a blessing. I can't tell you how big of a blessing it's been to be able to speak to you this morning. I enjoyed it. I was excited studying for this, and I'm encouraging myself at this point to go home and do what I don't know if anybody is willing to do and begin to write the words of God. But for this morning as we leave, I want to leave you with a benediction from the Word of God. This is from Jude chapter or Jude 24, verse 24 and 25. Now to him who is able to keep you from falling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy, to the only wise God, our Savior, be glory, majesty, dominion, and power now, forever. Amen. Thank you so much for listening this week. If you have any questions, you can email them to Pastor Jimmy at baconscastle.com. Also, check out our website at baconscastle.com to get to know us and see what God is doing locally here in Surrey. Be blessed.